Welcome to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference podcast, presented by ESPN and 42 Analytics. This is Jessica Gelman, who along with Daryl Morey, co-founded and chair the conference with a fantastic group of MIT Sloan students each year. We are thrilled to announce the launch of this podcast network to add more avenues to grow awareness and innovation around analytics and sports. We are excited to make the panel discussions from our 2019 conference, which covers a wide range of sports and analytics topics available via podcast for the very first time. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Good morning. Welcome to the 2019 Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. My name is Lindsay Chapman, and I'm a first year MBA student at MIT Sloan. It is my sincere honor to get to introduce our panel this morning. Data is the new black building data-driven organizations. And to introduce our panelists, Marianne Turk, COO of the NFL, Amy Howe, President of Ticketmaster, Jessica Gelman, CEO of the Kraft Analytics Group, and Mike Zarin, Assistant General Manager and Legal Counsel for the Boston Celtics. This panel will be moderated by Michelle Steele, studio anchor and reporter for ESPN. This panel will be 45 minutes, followed by approximately 10 minutes of Q&A from the audience. If you'd like to submit a question for the panelists, please do so on Twitter using the hashtag DataNewBlack. And with that, I'll pass it over to Michelle. Thanks, Lindsay. Hey, everybody. Um, I've been coming to Sloan for a very long time, since uh, before ESPN, in fact, since when I was at Bloomberg News. And every year what I do when I walk through the hallways is I kind of look to see what the percentage of women is here versus the year before. And I'm thrilled that Mike can be on our panel today <laughs> to represent the men who are here. You know, can I have the men stand up? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> You're a man. You Redefining know. diversity you, in the sports Being industry. Being the token today. Happy to, happy to be today's token okay. panelist. Okay. <laughs> oh, goodness. Yeah, you can talk to the other men after this panel about what it's like to be in sports. Okay. <laughs> Broken that ceiling. <laughs> so. <laughs> Big data, data analytics, represents some of the fastest growing professional skill sets in the country and plays a very important role, not just in sports business, but in society. As this unfolds and becomes bigger, teams and organizations around the world are racing to try to find the best methods to sort of understand the data, incorporate that data into their processes and discover the most effective ways to impact their audiences and their businesses. For instance, those in supply chain obviously use data to make adjustments to boost efficiency. Product and marketing teams use data to uncover feedback regarding product iteration or customer satisfaction, ways to reach customers. And after my experience on uh, my airline last night, airlines are boarding passengers, who are boarding passengers use data not at all. <laughs> took me a long time to write that joke. As they tried to uncover the least efficient ways of putting people in a cylinder tube. So we're going to start out this morning talking about how this reality of big data is affecting the practice of what all of you do in sports and how it's affected the experience as well of, of being a leader at your respective organization. So 
since I'm, I'm a storyteller by trade, I'm gonna kind of go down the line here and ask each of our panelists to tell us a story of something great and something successful that you were able to do thanks to data, data, data analytics, and maybe one story of something that didn't go as well, something that you learned from. So Marianne, let's start. Okay, yeah, I'll start. And I'll, I'm actually gonna start with a story um, from before I, I joined the NFL where I was a, um, I licensed NFL content in Canada for TSN and CTV. And we were in the era of, we were just starting in the digital marketing and so many of our advertisers, and this is how we make our money at the end of the day, at the end of the funnel, um, they were saying, we wanna advertise digitally, digitally. And what I posed was, um, how do we prove with data that we have, uh, we have a, we're a telco too, we were in Canada, with the deep packet inspection and browsing behavior from our mobile customers and prove that activity increases through the Super Bowl. So what we did was we monitored browsing behavior of a subset of, of our customers for 30 days before the Super Bowl, during the Super Bowl, and after the Super Bowl. And what we were able to prove by analyzing that data at the end of the day was that there was like a, between a 30 and a 50% uptick in traffic to websites and other areas of the customers that advertised in the Super Bowl. So we're gonna go deep later around ticketing and fans and the importance of you know, marketing to a person of one, but from a business perspective, having the ability to prove through concrete data and go to your advertisers and say, no, you need to advertise on television because this is the way you get awareness and this is how you reach the top of funnel customers. And it was very, very powerful for us. And we had some advertisers come back. We had the Women's World Cup of Soccer come later and it was very, very powerful for our business um, in Canada. What I would say in terms of a, a more negative story, and I'm gonna be sort of general here, when I get disappointed in um, sort of how people are thinking about analytics, it's, you know, we're gonna build an analytics team and we're gonna be a data-driven organization. And then there's just kind of this pause and you hear crickets in the background, you know? Like, it really is important to have senior leaders who wanna drive decisions with data. So my most disappointing, um, sort of experiences have been, we collect the data, we cleanse the data, we work hard on the data, and then it really doesn't push through and become part of the regular cadence of conversation at the executive table around making business decisions. And I think that's where we all have to get to, and that's why it's so good there's so many business students in the audience today. Great. Listen, within, uh, within our company, Live Nation and Ticketmaster, uh, we serve obviously the biggest sports teams in the world, uh, many of you in the audience, uh, but we also serve the biggest artists. And the area that we're investing in significantly in, in data is how do you sell, if you think about the, the on-sale, right? You've all been on Friday, 10 a.m., you're lining up to, to buy tickets to your favorite artists. A few years ago, Adele went on sale, right? And you had 10 million consumers lined up to buy 400,000 tickets. So where we're really investing in data and advanced analytics is trying to figure out in real time, how do we identify if you're a bot, automated technology, who has an unfair advantage relative to the average consumer? How do we know if you're a human? And ideally, how do we know if you're a fan who's actually gonna go to the show instead of flipping that on the secondary market? So the role that the data that those algorithms and advanced analytics is playing in solving that problem is probably the, one of the biggest priorities for us right now. 
Um, similar to Mayor, I mean, I have many stories of how data has been misused in, in organizations over the years. Um, I think there's some common pitfalls that I see that um, over, over the years. I think the, probably the most important one is, you, you know, a lot of times leaders have a hard time really understanding what problem they're solving, right? And if you're not clear on what problem you're solving, you're sending a whole bunch of teams, data scientists, great strategists off on a scavenger hunt. Uh, and it drives a tremendous amount of inefficiency in the organization. Uh, so I think that, for me, that's one of the biggest challenges. Uh, the second challenge is, uh, when we were talking about this uh, just a few minutes ago, is there's a real art to being able to take all of that data, right? Connect the dots across a lot of different data points and models and figure out, not just figure out what it says, um, but what is that implication that's going to ultimately change uh, decision making and, and drive better, um, you know, better innovation and better decisions within a company. Um, that's, that's one of the, I think, one of the hardest challenges for companies to really get right. Well, good morning, everyone, again. Um, I well, so the, the way that I've kind of learned to leverage analytics uh, in the work, I'm going to use an example from the Patriots um, from probably about five years ago, but I think it's a really good one because there's a mix of both the quantitative, kind of the, what you're seeing your customers doing, and the qualitative, what you're hearing them doing. And there really is or does need to be a mix of um, of that type of information in any decision making. What I, and you're gonna maybe find the trends in one place or another, but about five or six years ago, uh, at four Patriots games, we started to see some pretty significant shifts in how people were coming to games and what they were doing at games. And there was a lot more congregating that was going on and it was a lot more, um, there was a lot of uh, younger folks who seemed to be coming to the games. And so um, we kind of saw that and we also were looking at the feedback that we were getting from our customers. And, um, you know, for better or for worse, Gillette Stadium is on, you know, a two-lane uh, road. It's for worse. Okay. It, it is the worst. Okay, okay in Boston. <laughs> Thank God you got the renovation. It's like sitting in an Uber, though. <laughs> but it's a beautiful stadium Sorry. once you get there. It's a beautiful stadium. <laughs> but, I mean, listen, the stadium was built... Almost, almost 20 years ago at this point in time, there's been massive shifts in population, the, what people want to eat, the lines, all of these things, there were challenges. And so in looking to identify how we could make changes, we looked at, so we kind of heard what was happening, we saw what was happening, and then what we wanted to do was make a business change to the stadium and that would have the least impact to, to the customers. And that, that meant a lot of analysis of where do we have customers maybe not attending, where do we have um, less season ticket members who won't be impacted if we make a change to the stadium to potentially create a new congregating area or remove some seats from the venue? And um, it, was a, it was an exhaustive effort. And not only did we then identify a location that we wanted to do, we went and did focus groups to get feedback from the fans and make sure that what we were actually going to be doing was was correct. So it wasn't just this, we're going to do the analysis and then boom, it, it was thoughtful. It was engaging the customer. And so what we ultimately did was created the Optum Field Lounge, which is uh, in the south end zone at Gillette Stadium. It's only for season ticket members. So, you know, it was not like a net, net new thing that we were trying to necessarily sell. They do have to pay incrementally for it, but the experience inside the Optum Field Lounge allows for that congregation obviously some seats were removed so there's less congestion in the stadium and on route one 
And, and the success of that has now been copied by a number of other um, organizations, not just football, but to have that kind of experience on the, on the field. And I think that that's kind of a, a great example of bringing together a lot of different pieces of information. And I think you guys have kind of alluded to the challenges of getting people within an organization to buy in. And that was, I mean, that, a big part of the process, even in doing the focus groups, was to allow the folks who maybe historically, uh, who, you know, who would be selling the, the Optum Field Lounge uh, membership, a voice in what we're delivering. And, and that's, that's some, of the, some of the learnings, I think, both good and challenging. Yeah, and as someone who travels a lot, certainly during the NFL season, I have noticed at a lot of stadiums around the league them kind of taking that Optum Field experience and replicating it wherever they can. For the reporters, it's a little annoying. Because <laughs> you can't stand there? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but, but for the fans, it's phenomenal. You get so close. It isn't just the game experience. They can be a part of the excitement and the aura of the pregame as well. Yeah, and, I, and I think the other thing is that, again, it was so many people that were involved, but the underlying baseline of it was, was data to help drive the initial decision of where and what the change could or should be. What was the, I mean, certainly a lot of goodwill generated and great for the brand and great for brand loyalty, but what was the business sort of impact of that? Yeah, and I mean, that was also, as a business person, how do you make it net neutral? You're going to be removing seats from a stadium, so there's, there is a cost to the membership, and so you know, it, end, it ended up being a break-even affair, aside from the cost to, to develop it. Is there anything, is there an example of something that you lear learned from or something nope. less on the negative sex? <laughs> Fair enough. If you would like to hold Jessica's feet to the fire, please send your questions. <laughs> a numbers game. No, I mean, listen, I think um, one, of the, one of the first kind of, uh, when I first ran a ticketing office and we were trying to move some folks around uh, in a building and hold tickets, we didn't hold enough tickets because um, we didn't think about the fact that the tickets would be split. If you, need, if you have 500, 500 seats that you need to move, it's not just 500 seats that you need because there's twos and threes and you're going to create these singles. And that was, from a, from a pure math perspective, 500, 500. But from a running a business and understanding what's going on, like there's, we talk about, we will talk about, I'm sure, intuition and experience and what you learn. That was a great learning experience that we had to solve on uh, when, when, because we didn't have enough seats to move people because we didn't take into, into account that. Okay. That was the only mistake though. That was the only one, <laughs> just that one. Okay, one's a lot. <laughs> Never happened. Mike? I'll start with the disappointing thing because it, it, it really goes to sort of the core of what I think this panel's about. Um, so I start at the Celtics. I'm a brand new intern. Daryl, um, you all met Daryl. Daryl's uh, working there. He, everybody knows Daryl here. Um, and he sets up this meeting with the coaching staff, and we've sort of figured out, um, at the time, Coach O'Brien, who turns out is a very smart and interested in this stuff guy, but nobody was doing this work in basketball at the time. And he had been talking all the time about how um, the Celtics were number one in field goal percentage defense. And this was before anybody knew about effective field goal percentage. So we, we, had some, we were calling it adjusted field goal percentage at the time. And um, the reason we were number one in field goal percentage defense is he was just packing the paint and letting the other teams shoot threes. And so we were actually 10th in effective field goal percentage defense. And so we thought, 
um, we would go talk to him and the coaching staff and um, let them know basically that you know we could do better on defense even if our field goal percentage actually went defensive field goal percentage actually went up a little bit. Um, and Frank Vogel was the video coordinator there at the time, and he was very excited about this. It was all good. And we go in, and um, I, I don't know, I must have talked for like three minutes, and Coach O'Brien says, no, we're number one in field goal percentage defense. We can't get any better. <laughs> and and it, you know, that was the moment where I was like, oh, wait, this is, you know, there's, there's th that was like the, the moment with the, from, I hate this moment in Moneyball where there's the scouts over here and this geeky kid in the corner behind the computer. Um, but that was sort of my moment for that. Like, oh, actually, we need to create a culture of this here. We can't just show up and say something that we think is smart and have it um, get accepted. Uh, and, you know, over time, sort of that coaching staff and the others that we've worked with have, have gotten much more savvy with this stuff. But that was a real sort of eye-opener to me because, yeah. um, you know, he wanted to hear stats that just confirmed what he already thought was true. And he was very, very excited to get those statistics. Yeah. Um, but at the time, he sort of thought, I, I can't learn from this stuff. It, it, it's useful for talking about, but it's not actually useful for learning things. So that was, that was. Um, I mean, the Celtics have ostensibly been very successful at creating a culture that that you know buys in, right? Yeah, we've been very lucky. Um, particularly, you know, Wick and Steve are our top two owners. Um, from them down, uh, the whole leadership of the organization is just is just super open-minded and wants any. I mean, if you've ever met Danny. You know, he's just looking for any edge he can possibly get. Uh, and it's been the same with Doc and Brad. So that, that makes creating this culture so much easier. Yeah. Um, somewhere in this room is probably, you know, a guy who's in every one of our coaching meetings except this morning. And why are you here, Shane? And, um, and, uh, and that's not weird or different. There isn't a, some guy off in the corner who's just going to speak up on, on stats. He's in, he's in all those meetings. and, and um, you know, they're just a part of that group. And so that, developing that culture is sort of the most um, important thing really you can do. I've said that a, a few different years at this conference is that the, the communication of the information is as important, if not more important than the actual, you know, how accurate it is, um, the quantitative work that you do. So uh, it's, been, it's been heartening to be involved in creating that culture after showing up. And it was, it was very much not that way on my first meeting with the coaching staff. <laughs> Actually, I'm glad that you mentioned that because I wanted to go into the way back machine a little bit. Um, we've, we've talked a little bit about what the landscape is like right now. What was it like back then, you know, 10 or 15 years ago? Can you kind of walk us through what it was like to make an important decision kind of back then versus now when you can use all the data and intuition that you do have available to you? Yeah, I mean, back then we had box score data. So, and if we were lucky, we had an intern who could call the NCAA and have us have them fax us 2,000 pages of NCAA games. And the two of us, I, I was an intern and I had an intern, like just typing in you were the king of the interns. college uh, data to prepare for the draft. Um, you know, now- I would literally call the NCAA. No, this is what happened. We, we, so we thought, all right, it, it didn't go so well with the coaching staff. What's something we can attack that, that doesn't require that uh, relationship to be perfect right away? And so instantly we thought there was this market inefficiency in the draft. Um, and that was a thought. We weren't sure. And the only way to check it was to actually have some data on guys in college and figure out or do the, how do they do once they get to the pros. Um, but there was, you know, 
basketball reference didn't exist. There were no websites that had all the college. But ESPN had like two years of college data going back, and it wasn't easy to scrape for a bunch of reasons. So we called the NCAA, and they literally sent us the end season box score sheets, often done with typewriter, that each college was required to send them uh, at the end of each season, going back to 1985, I think. And, and I said, like, I need an intern to help with this. And they said, but you're an intern. I said, well, but I need an intern to help with this. So the two of us, we hired a guy, and, and the two of us spent several months literally just typing in. Uh, OCR wasn't very good then. Um, and, we, and we built a model to model the draft and, and had some success with it. But uh, the availability of data that matches the things that coaches and front offices talk about is the biggest change from then for us. So then we had the box score, but like you look at the box score and that doesn't tell you what happened in the game. Like it might say someone, you know, how many, James Harden had 58 points or something like that? Yeah. A lot of points last night. It doesn't say anything to you about how he got those points, although in his case, it's probably just stepping back and shooting ISO threes. So how different is the distance? Now we actually, can, we're, right we're, tracking, now. we're tracking all those things now <laughs> with the cameras, right? Um, so, so we actually- You no longer have the, the NCAA on speed we, dial. We, we don't, we don't. Um, but, but we're also able to speak the language that the people making the decisions are speaking because we actually know about the movements on the court and what caused those events that are tracked in the box score to happen. And that's the biggest change in, in our world. I don't know about yours. Well, I was, I was just gonna say like having, you know, basically, I mean, Kager was basically created because of the challenges that we were having getting information in the way that we needed. So if I look at kind of the, the path that you know, I've kind of gone through and the organizations that I've worked with and the clients that I've worked with, it kind of starts with what you're talking about, which is data access, which is just getting the data out of the systems to be able to do some analysis. That's kind of challenge number one. Uh, and even that data can be not clean or, you know, or it comes in a report that you can't, that you know, has a header at the top of each page and you have to do all this cleaning. So that's kind of challenge number one. And that's pervasive today too, because a lot of the providers are not Ticketmaster and they're not thinking about what their clients might need and how to potentially provide it. The, sec the second like, kind of thing that happens is this concept of data creation. So there's this data that you, that you can pull, but it is only telling half the story, which I think is what you're saying. So in like business speak, it, the example that I like to give is if someone who's calling in for calling in for a customer service really on the customer service line, they can mean two very different things. If they call in because uh, they want to log into the into the portal to do take an action, that's probably a good thing. If they're calling in because they had a bad experience at a game, that's a bad thing. Those should be coded differently. Uh, I mean, that's just one of a million different examples of how you want to create data to be able to do deeper analysis, right? The third is kind of where I think most folks are kind of getting to now. Mm -hmm. and, but there's all these other challenges that still exist, which is data management, which is the ability to pull data quickly, easily, integrate it, have a single view of your customer, have a single view of your, of your operations or stats or whatever it might be in order to, to do good work and not spend all of your time cleaning the data would get to do the interesting work. And then the, the, third, the fourth phase, which is kind of where everyone's trying to get to, is the data use and communication, which is how are we, how, what are the analytics we're gonna do with all of this information that we've created, that we have access to, that we've managed? How are we gonna visualize it so we can 
so we can communicate it well? And then what are some new metrics that we might need to think about bringing to bear? So, um, you know, whatever that might be. It could be a new maintenance score because you have three different things that you can see inside a venue that you want to better understand, but you don't want to look at all three of them. You want one thing that's going to say, okay, now I should go look at this yeah. system. So, no, and I think those, those first three steps are the hardest, right? I mean, we all have some version of that same holy grail, which is, you know, and certainly at, at Ticketmaster and Live Nation, we want that single point of view into the fan, right? We want to be able to aggregate all of that data. And to, to Jess's point, the, just the massive amounts of data, right? To be able to pull that in, to structure it, to clean it, and to get that into an environment that is truly democratized and self-service, it's a beautiful vision. We've had every software vendor in our, you know, you could imagine um, pitching us on their ability to create that. And, and candidly, shameless plug to Kager, they've done, this is where you guys are, do a phenomenal job of, of helping companies. Because that, from my perspective, you know, once you get the, once you invest and you win that war for talent with all the data science, the hard part isn't necessarily building really smart models on top of that. It's getting that data clean and getting the, the foundation, um, as one of my colleagues likes to say, the building that copper plumbing so that you can do all these great things and innovate and build new products on top of that. So that, I, that what, what just says really resonates. To the question of how it's changed 10 to 15 years ago, as, yeah. Mike, as you were going through your example, I remember when I graduated in, from undergrad in 1994, I, m most of my career before I joined Live Nation was in consulting uh, with McKinsey. And at the time, an access database was probably the most sophisticated <laughs> tool you used. And if you were really special, you had, you know, the statisticians on the team had their own computer because they were processing huge volumes of data. Now you look at uh, McKinsey, I think a third of the firm is either data scientists, digital experts, advanced analytics, right? The, just the, the complexion of companies and, and fundamentally how we solve problems has changed vastly, right? In, in 10, 15 years, which means the type of people you have to hire into an organization uh, looks very different than it did 10 to 15 years ago. Um, it's good and bad, but I think the one thing that hasn't changed is, I think the common theme that we're all saying is there's still a massive art Mm -hmm. and in problem solving, right? So as great as the, you know, the analytics and the ability to process massive amounts of volume, there is no replacement for just great judgment and the ability to, uh, to navigate through all of that. Yeah, I guess from my perspective through the last little while, I'm just so happy that data is like fashionable now because I did a graduate <laughs> degree in applied engineering mathematics and I've always been embarrassed to tell people about that. So is it, what like, is it, the name of this panel? <laughs> data is the new black. <laughs> so look, from our, our perspective and, and building off of what Amy said around the mixture of art and science, back in the day, when anybody wanted to know about their customer or their fan, it was survey data. It was, you know, let, let them tell you what, what they want. And then you were to try and guess, therefore, they are going to exhibit the following characteristics. So from our perspective now, we, we do a little bit of both, right? We still are heavily into fan surveys. We understand, you know, fan avidity at that very, very top level. And that's important information. But then we drive from the data, we triangulate that data so that we can really understand what kind of behaviors and characteristics do those avid fans exhibit? And potentially even more importantly, how do we get at our non-fans? And how do we build a model where you can start to predict what you need to do, what products you need to offer, what does your 
league and sport need to look like so that you can start to get non-fans to become casual fans and come up that value chain. And for me, it's the holy grail. And Ewow is here in the audience somewhere. He's our, he's our data guy at the league and he's phenomenal. But it's, it's that, is that building that predictive model where you could really start to say, if we do X, Y, Z, what will happen in that marketplace? What will happen in the country? What will happen in Europe uh, in terms of generating more fandom and more avidity for the NFL? And that's, that's the difference, right? Before it was, we were talking to ourselves. Survey, survey, survey. Okay, here's what our fans are. Mm -hmm. For me, it's boy, oh boy, I'm never going to be able to know how to get new fans in unless I talk to them or unless I understand what characteristics uh, and what products I have to put in the marketplace to have those folks evolve into the fandom of the NFL. Is it true that you guys used to use corkboard technology to set the schedule? So 32 teams, 17 home games, you have, you know, Lions, Cowboys have to play on Thanksgiving and there was this, you didn't have uh, sophisticated analytics to be able to do that many years ago. There was, for sure there was none, and Howard Katz is the guy, he's the king of the uh, schedule. I, I'm sure at some point 3M sticky notes were a big evolution, you know, in terms <laughs> of the schedule. Post-its yeah, in a conference I mean, look, room. there's a lot of analytics now around um, how we do that and, it, you know, not with a regional broadcasting model too. It's like you're predicting, given what you're doing, what are the ratings gonna be, what, all of that stuff is part of the whole program. And that's, that's a Rubik's Cube in and of itself, just with the constraint model around uh, you know, the, the scheduling. How do you, for those of you in the front-facing businesses, how do you collect that data from fans? I was just going to jump in on one more thing, just yeah, yeah, sure. to like, because the part on the surveys is important. But even if, like, legitimately, 11 years ago, you couldn't connect the person who uh, you if they that they opened and clicked an email because it was just like take a list of names, put it into the email campaign, and send it out. And so you, it wasn't you didn't know who was opening it. You couldn't take a specific action. Now we talk about trigger campaigns and trying to move people from from being maybe a fan to being a, a customer who's buying. I mean, the, the level of sophistication is rampant. And by the way, it's not just email, right? We have app notifications. People are trying to get more sophisticated on social media if they would open up the and allow people to do some more direct communication specifically to people. So, I mean, the, the level of what can be done is evolving rapidly as well as the amount of data. Yeah. And, yeah. So on your, on your question on how we collect data, so and Amy and I were talking about this earlier. I mean, for me, I had this like fan view and I want to know everything. So of course, across Ticketmaster, across secondary ticketing ecosystem, across Dick's Sporting Goods, across stadium attendance, uh, across set-top box information in terms of what they're watching, all of that um, is how we collect data. And of course, you know, the holy grail is the you know, the unique identifier. How do you know, how do, how do you correlate what that Single one fan. person is doing across the chain? And you're never going to be perfect on that, but you start to build models where you can predict, you know, certain kinds of behaviors and certain kind of characteristics generally go together. And then you, you go, like if characteristic A and B generally go together, you get all the guys with A and you market them on B because you know they'll likely want it, right? And I mean, it's, it's still an imperfect science, but it's... Um, we collect data from so many different places and then try and build sort of fan behavior, fan characteristic kind of models, and then we cluster them and, and try and 
act and, and take action in certain ways because of that. But you've built an entire business off of effectively doing that, right? Because you were so frustrated, you have multiple databases right across the organization. I, th I mean, I think it's what everyone is challenged with. Yeah. Um, if, you're, if you're dealing with the customer facing side or you're dealing with wanting to get information from a, a bunch of different channels, second spectrum and, and all of that. But yeah, I mean, the, the challenge is the same, whether it's business or team, but it's on the customer side, it's if you're calling people, what is the action that they're taking? But then again, we talked about how do we go levels deeper? What time are the sales reps calling? You know, are you giving everyone an equal kind of customer type to call? So I, I think the, le the depth that we're going now is, is, is much deeper and will be closer to what we think it's going to be. Where I think people get a little uh, challenged today is that people just think they need to capture all the information and then they're not actually doing what I call the so what. How are we going to like change the business from this? They're, they're, yeah, it's super interesting to know this piece of information, but what are you gonna what are you gonna do with it? Mm. That's it. That's really important. Like, so an example of that is set top box data, right? And how set -top do you box data? Right. So what are people? So we have Nielsen ratings, which again is just a sample size of sorts, right? But set top box data is really who? When are they? You can know when they're flipping the channel, and you know how much time they're spending on each channel. And what, what I've done before is say, okay. I reverse engineered what I ought to be paying for rights on my sports cable channel in Canada. So I knew that um, you know, an NFL viewer would also view the following things. And I knew what primary viewership was, and then I sort of identified secondary and tertiary viewership so that I knew I could predict churn. I could predict people that wouldn't watch or that may even churn off the service entirely by not having certain rights. And then I could reverse engineer the value of those rights. So that was a very specific use of set-top box data that um, really, really helped us in terms of setting you know, limits into what we were willing to pay for different sports licenses. And people yeah, think... say the NFL has not embraced data. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why she's there. <laughs> but I, th I do think the uh, opportunity, and both Justin and Marianne alluded to it, right, is it's not just how do you take all of your internal data, right? And we have massive amounts of data on a single consumer across multiple marketplaces, behavioral data, demos, psychographics, but it's how do you then take third-party data sources and enrich that, right? Whether it's streaming sources, there's lots of third-party data providers that you can use to, um, to enrich that data set. And that's where, as we continue to solve that identity problem, um, figuring out how you augment your internal data with the appropriate third-party sources is really um, is, is key to what we're trying to do. But like OTT, if, I mean, I have no idea if you guys have a game plan to go into content, but if you are, for your artists, for example, and you have content that people can watch who purchase at a certain level a ticket, and you can see if they're rewinding, pausing, right. sharing it with yep. a friend, like right now we can sit here and say, that's super interesting, or, but for what? For what? And so, the, so I always say you still have to wait a year to see what the response was. Did they buy more tickets? Exactly. Then, but I mean, that, that's the where we have so much more information that's coming, and we're just, we kind of just need to wait to see what it means yep. a little bit. You know, sports is a business that's predicated on emotion so many times. We feel like there's, there's a visceral connection to our team or, or the league or what have you. Um, do you feel that the culture that you're trying to build within your respective organizations is, um, and, and, and also sports more broadly, do you think are, they're receptive to, to data? You know, Mike, I know that you talked about building a culture at the Celtics um, that has buy-in around this stuff. Do you feel like people in sports 
are more or, or less? Because I feel like you've had experiences on, on both, both sides of that. I mean, I, I haven't, I don't know, I've been going to Celtics games since long before I worked for the team, and my level of emotional involvement in the game hasn't really changed as a result of the work I'm doing now. Um, so I think... Do you think that attitudes towards that are different in sports? Yeah, oddly enough, for all of the grief that, um, you know, the, the people say, we have better data in sports than almost any other business has. I mean, I maybe the ticketing business comes close. Yeah, um, I think but, so. But, we're all in the same business. <laughs> <laughs> sure, but, but I, I mean, on the operations side, like, right. we're actually trying, I mean, yeah. how many businesses get to track the movements of their employees at 25 frames a second every right. second right. through the whole time they're working? Um, there's not a lot of businesses that do that. That you know of. That. <laughs> that, that we know of, right. Like, I, I'm not sure, Just, I'm not sure what, what pixels on my screen are from Ticketmaster all day while <laughs> clicking around. Um, but uh, I, I don't, I mean, I think we have, a, sports has had a great culture. For, for all the grief that the scouts sitting around the table with the cigars get, um, there's been a culture of information gathering and use in sports for a very, very long time. Um, people have wanted box scores for baseball games more than 100 years uh, now. And that's just not the case in other businesses. And so mm. I think, um, you know, that culture has always been there. The fact that there's new data sources and people don't always understand them and you need statisticians to do some of this work um, is changing some, sure. But I don't. I have never gotten the impression that people don't want information about what happened in the game last night. Um, people have always wanted that when it comes to sports. And But you certainly have come across coaches who, who want to trust their intuition, maybe, or what they see with their, their eyes, so to speak, as opposed to Sure, but that's what information too, right? Like they yeah. have that information from somewhere, and so you just have to understand the inherent biases in that, and the inherent biases in the regression model output that you might be feeding them. And, and uh, make sure they understand where the limitations of each of those things. And I don't think that's different in, in any business. Um, I would say, when you're I would say it's a basic source of information. We yeah. find, like, my observation so far at the league has been um, we get passionate about competing and we get passionate about winning, and that's sports. And the fact that data is so important to achieving that objective makes you passionate about it. So it's the golden age of choice for content. Anywhere, anyhow you want it, you have to get it. We are competing in a different world now, and in order to compete against those uh, companies that are streaming and everything else, we have to have data. Everybody knows it, so that makes the whole organization passionate about it. But I will tell folks in the room who are going into an organization, we didn't get really good at it until we, we laid down the gauntlet and said, everyone who has a little bit of data everywhere in the organization, it's over. We are centralizing where we do data, one infrastructure, one source of the truth, and put it all together and staff it properly. And that was when we really finally started to make traction with it and get passionate about it. Michelle, I'll, g I'll give you an example to, to your question around um, uh, emotion. I, and I'll zoom out for a minute away from sports and just talk about uh, live entertainment in general mm -hmm. and, and this more from the artist perspective. But, you know, as somebody who I spent my entire career just you make rational, fact-based decisions, right? And, and then I kind of come into this industry and go back to the Adele example, right? You have 10 million consumers, she has 400,000 tickets, and so there's a certain price for those tickets, right, that the market will bear. Um, there's a whole bunch of reasons why, in this particular case, Adele would never price those to market. Um, so 
what, I think what's been a very interesting transition to see is that you know you can you can have the best data, the base, the best analytics in the world, and that doesn't necessarily drive what you would consider to be you know the optimal decision making. Um, I will say, even in the last uh, in the last you know four to five years, as the the sophistication around pricing and distribution and being able to identify and engage more directly with the fans, you you certainly are starting to see. Um, changes in behavior and willingness for artists to think differently about how they price that inventory, right? And you always have a spectrum, right? You have the the Adele's and the Pearl Jams of the world, and then you have others who are much more willing to to actually price to market. Um, but that evolution has been very interesting. But at the core, there's a lot of emotion um, that drives that decision making, not necessarily facts and rationale. I, or, oh, I was, sorry, Jess. No, no, no. It's okay. I was just going to say I think where, where sports has exceeded specifically on the business side is with understanding the customer and trying to uh, market to them and engage them. Um, my wife works in healthcare, and you know, in that space, there isn't necessarily that great opportunity to, to engage. You might now get some text messages that you have an appointment coming up, but that's really like in the last year. And, but on the, on the flip side of that, where they're really strong is probably more on the product side in terms of tracking what's happening and the efficacy. And you know, if I look at what's happening on the sports business side in particular, where I see the innovation really starting to come is yes, there's a tr ticketing is by far, you know, the furthest ahead. But there's so many other areas. Retail is very far behind. Venue operations is very far behind. There, there isn't that same approach to analytics, and so that makes sense because of what you said with respect to emotion. What people care about and where the teams or the leagues want to be engaging is, oh, that great play that happened, mm. you know, he, relive that moment with a video or whatever that might be. And I think that, that we're just, in my opinion, scratching the surface of what we can. And with sports gambling coming down the pipe, yeah. it's a whole new level. Oh, yeah. Whole new level. Um, one last question before I hit the uh, audience questions. And by the way, feel free to, to send them using the hashtags above. But you know, we often think about using data as a way to, to react smartly to, to the inputs coming in. What's possible is that we can move from a reactive state to a more predictive one where we look at patterns and kind of anticipate what might happen. Can you, we, I want to go down the line again here, uh, again, could you tell us a few things that your organization would, would love to predict or maybe are predicting right now using these insights? Okay, I'll start. <laughs> um, we go. I have a that's long the thing list. When you're the, you're furthest away from the moderator now. So, so there's, there's a couple of things, and I, I spoke about it earlier. Um, for me, I would just, and all of us, we would really love to predict two things. What, what makes a fan become not a fan, and what makes a non-fan become a fan? And, you know, and there's different kind of, that, that's striated, right, in terms of from avidity all the way down to casual fan. And we are getting there. We really are getting there in terms of understanding the characteristics and you know what draws women into the game. What what draw what what do we have to do around millennials and what are the cultural moments we have to um, you know serve up to them? It's not just about highlights for them. It's about fashion. It's about music. It's about food. It's about all sorts of different things. So those are the kinds of things that I'm really most excited about going forward. And you know we're retooling our marketing engine to. You know, we will still be, you know, huge brand spots and anthemic and everything like that that America loves to see about football. But we're getting in there and we are starting to compete at that level on engaging fans on something that is adjacent to football, that is fun and taking the helmets yeah. off our players and really getting at it. And that's 
really exciting for me to predict what we need to do to bring those new fans into the game. What makes a fan a fan? What makes a fan a fan? What makes, no, what makes a non-fan? What makes a non-fan a fan? How do you get them at convert the right, them. convert them, yeah. Right. yeah. Amy? Listen, um, we're using predictive modeling in almost every part of our business right now. I, as, I, as I said earlier, I think that for us, one of the most important areas is to, uh, you know, is that identity problem in predicting, you know, are you actually going to go to the game? Are you going to go see that, that artist as opposed to, you know, flipping it? Um, we're using predictive model to make sure that we manage the fraud problem, which is, you know, significant for, um, for any e-commerce company right now. We use it all the time, right, to predict, are you going to renew your season ticket holder? I'm sure Jess can speak about that better than anyone. Um, but it, it's literally entrenched in, in every part of our business right now. Um, and it's just fundamentally changing the face of, of how we do business. I mean, the, the retention one is a great one. And, and in particular, I don't think there is a clear and coherent way of if you raise a price by this much, here's the impact. It's, it, it's still a little bit of gut um, in that regard. And so that, that's a big one. I would say outside of that, it's about how folks are engaging while they're watching events. And to that I mean, I know when I'm watching a game at home, I'm mm. watching it on a TV, I also have my computer, and I may also be like texting with a friend and doing social media. For instance. <laughs> as an example. Um, but I think as, as the, you know, of several years ago, many people in vent who were running uh, venues were concerned that people might you know, there, and there has been a drop in attendance, but people would, would, would be coming to less games. And so the result and change in that regard is that there's the Wi-Fi is better in the venues. You can do more stuff that you might be wanting to do at home. But we're still not at the point where we can connect. This is what I'm watching, and here's all the other things that I'm doing. Uh, so that, that's really where, where I think the, the big opportunity is. And, and then to be able to kind of communicate with people in, on whichever medium or channel is going to be the most effective for that customer. Yeah, on the business side, I mean, we don't own our arena, so it's 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 very much the season. Who, which season ticket holders are you going to lose, and then what are the effects of pricing on the on the basketball, on the basketball side? I mean, we we try to predict everything, and and the biggest challenge um, for us sometimes is accepting that the world is random. <laughs> so uh, you, you might get. All, imagine you could get every piece of information you could possibly get down to some, maybe not the atomic level, but like some tiny level. There's still just going to be some randomness in what yeah. happens in the game. Yeah. And so um, you think you've done a good job predicting, and then, and then weird stuff happens sometimes. So that's hard. But I think the next big frontier on the operations side is predicting injuries. Um, yeah. Hayward. Um, Speaking of it's random. It's going to be difficult I mean. to predict that, that one. Um, but... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the, the, you know, the most common injuries in the NBA um, are ankle sprains and patellar tendonitis. And the better we can get at figuring out, you know, when those are going to crop up, um, because you, know, you can strengthen people's ankles uh, or, or people's systems to not sprain their ankles uh, as much. Um, but you also want to know, all right, am I getting close to that? And so there's there's a lot of vendors here at this conference who will try and tell you that they've got the solution to that, and, and um, I'm not going to knock any of them, but um, it's, that's a really difficult thing to actually do well. Uh, and I know all teams are, are working on that to some extent, um, but that's sort of the next big frontier as we've gotten reasonably good at predicting things like career arcs and, and season outcomes and things. What, I mean, what are the concerns there to the privacy of the players? 
Well, I think, yeah. I, I think I'm happy to talk about that. <laughs> I think the, the biggest concern for me is the players are very worried about privacy, and they ought to be, but mm. there's not a lot of talking the about the fact... Too. No, the unions are on behalf of the players. And, and, but there's not a lot of talk about the fact that 98% of the time our interests actually align and we want them to be healthy and playing well. And so most of that information that's being collected is, is not, we're not selling any of it. There's still HIPAA and there's a very limited HIPAA waiver in the CBA where we're allowed to say that someone's injured when they get injured. You're not giving um, it to reporters. For we're not giving it to reporters, exactly. <laughs> and so, and so um, you know. I'll tweet that out later. It's great. Um, but but the, the fear around that is so much on the privacy side and not on the, oh, I might get injured. Maybe we can actually learn something that will keep me from getting injured and improve my career. I don't know how we make that shift happen in, in players, um, but you know, I imagine you hear the same thing at Ticketmaster, like you're collecting all this data about me, what's gonna happen with it? Oh yeah. Um, in no, fact, I'm... the point is to like, get you discounted tickets or ads for things that right, you might not know right. are happening, right? Um, so it's, it's really, the interests of the players and the teams align so much more than they diverge uh, on, the, on the injury uh, and medical information topic. And, and I, I wish the world realized that, particularly the players' world realized that better. Okay. I think that the data privacy one is interesting, right? I mean, in, it's still early days for a GDPR, but at least what, what we've seen over um, uh, in the UK and some That's the, the law in Europe that protects data privacy. Right, it's, which sorry. CCPA, which is the California Privacy Act, is coming to... Um, uh, to North America, and it's cl cluttering our roadmaps. I'm guessing it is many others as well. But I think what we found is that if you're, you know, if you put the fan in control or the consumer in control, and you're upfront and honest in the communication, they'll actually give you a lot of latitude, right? I mean, we, our stats are from when we rolled out GDPR. There's less than 0.1% of our total fan base that is actually opted into their new privacy rights. Um, right. So if you, you know, if, if you roll this out in, in a professional and respectful way, um, and by the way, you use that data to actually deliver better experiences to the consumer, I think fans or uh, consumers are actually We had the same experience in Canada aware. once the law came in and people had to opt in, it was pretty, they did. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, we're gonna get some questions from the audience now. Um, this is a question from Marianne about the NFL. Is the NFL collect, I'm sure they are, is the NFL collecting data on refs calls slash practices? If so, what is it telling you? Oh. This is a fan from New Orleans. Yeah, yeah exactly. Great. Oh. Sorry. That was great. What are you talking about? Well, actually, it's a, it's a good conversation, and we didn't talk much about football operations and the data that we do collect in football operations. And you said it best. I mean, we, there's a, a ton of video capture on everything, and the answer is yes. We collect video on all those calls, and... Look, uh, the commissioner's office is right next to mine, and on Monday morning, he's down the hall, onto the fifth floor with the football operations guys, and Albert Ron reviewing uh, lots and lots of plays for any number of reasons, whether it's officiating player health and safety, rule changes, and how it's working, how it's impacting the game, and all of that stuff. So the answer is yes, we absolutely do. Okay. So Sean Payton, if you're listening, that's the answer. Um, how do you get leadership on board with trusting the story that data is telling them? You guys are leaders. So, I mean, it sounds like you trust it already. But. Yeah, it's, um, it's like how do you, data proves or disproves a hypothesis, right? And that's a kind of proven scientific method for saying yes or no. So you either believe that the data is good or you don't. 
And if, the if you have a problem where people think the data is crap and hasn't, hasn't been cleaned properly or whatever, you're never going to get there. And you as a leader shouldn't be presenting it anyway if you think it's crap. Or you should have a view as to why the data is pure and where the um, sort of uh, weaknesses in the data are. Um, and, and then you tell a story with it. And also, I've, in my past, I've always had the hard data, uh, proving or disproving the hypothesis. And then I've had more traditional like whether it's customer surveys or things like that, to support where I'm coming from. So directionally, everything is pointing in the same place, and then the data will let you kind of be more surgical and precise in how you execute against the plan. Yeah, I think, listen, I think it's a, it's a big cultural shift, right, in, in many companies. Um, I do think the art of storytelling is so critical, right, to be able to socialize what, you know, what is all this saying and why is this relevant and, and meaningful to actually act differently based on the data. Um, the other thing I've seen is uh, we have a term in our company called um, HIPPO, which is the highest paid person's opinion. Sometimes the, the, the HIPPO's opinion is actually not accurate and you've got people sitting in the room saying, yeah, the data wouldn't suggest that. But culturally, sometimes it can be very difficult, right, for if you're a junior analyst and you're looking at something and you know, your boss's boss's boss is saying, nope, this is what we're going to go do and, you know, just mobilize the troops. So that, that's a cultural shift, right? Getting, making sure that as leaders, it's incumbent on us to make sure that we're asking the right questions and we're pulling the right people in um, and, you know, people feel comfortable dissenting if they, if they have a different point of view. Yeah. I, I, I have another. I, well, let me, can I just yeah, yeah. add one thing to this? Because I think it's important. Um, the less black boxy you can make right. the process yeah. of analysis be for the people who aren't analysts that need to hear the output of your analysis, the better it is. And by that I mean, if le whatever leadership is to the person asking this question, um, understands how you arrived at your answer, rather than you just saying the numbers say or the something mm. says, mm. Um, they're much, much more likely to trust it. And they're also much more likely to ask you the questions that they should be asking you about how trustworthy it might be. And you might actually end up learning something where you're actually wrong. Um, but you also will build trust for future analyses that you do whether or not based on the same process. If it's clear that you're using a rational process that's understandable to uh, arrive at the conclusion that you're selling. One last thing, and it's got to be brief. Um, in one sentence, what would you advise to the people out here in the audience who are looking for data-related jobs let, from your perspective as leaders in this space? Uh, let the example of these people show you that in sports there are many more data and analysis jobs uh, in non-operations side jobs than there are in operations side, and realize that you can work in sports doing something other than picking players? Jess? Um, I think my biggest thing is uh, educate yourself. The, the, the tools that are being used today, I mean, as you kind of alluded to at the beginning with access, are very different than the, well, than the, than, than the tools that were used when kind of we were starting out. And I, and I think that being constantly curious and there's so many classes that are available online, so that, that would be kind of my number one thing. And, and don't be afraid to ask questions, because I think your point yeah. about people just doing the analysis and they're like, we're done, and then not asking two or three further questions of, what, does this look right? And, and that's, that's the other thing. Just 
it's, it's still around the be curious, but don't be afraid to, to poke holes in your own analysis. Yeah, similar. I, listen, I think um, now versus when I graduated from undergrad, there, there's a minimum investment in those hard skills that I think you have to be, you have to have to be relevant in today's economy and to be relevant as a leader. Um, and, and Mike, to your point about a black box, is somebody who I didn't grow up as an engineer and I don't know how to code. Um, so there's, and you don't necessarily need to go out and code, but there, there is a base level of understanding now around just how how data models work, right, that I think you need to have that is significantly more advanced than certainly when I graduated. And I would say keep coming to the Sloan Conference because what a great way to meet some terrific companies. <laughs> there's also, there's a careers panel every year that answers this question at, at very long. No, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm, I apologize. <laughs> No, look, it's, uh, I feel old now because I used to program in DBase 3. Oh, wasn't even 3 plus. Um, look, find something that you're really passionate about. There isn't, there isn't a business on the planet that isn't going to be using data. So the functional expertise of data will let you go anywhere. And whether you start in retail and you end up in sports, the thing is that sports has so many relevant adjacent industries that... Um, don't think that if you start in, uh, in retail or banking or wherever that you can't uh, end up being adjacent to sports and being involved with sports in some way. But that functional expertise of quantitative analytics, don't be afraid to code, figure it out. It's not that scary and have some fun with it. All right, let's hear it for the panel today, you guys. This is great. Thank you. If you want to hear these panels in person next year on March 6th and 7th, 2020 in Boston, please register for the 14th annual MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference at sloansportsconference.com. This recording is the property of 42 Analytics and may not be published, broadcast, rewritten, or redistributed without the express written consent of 42 Analytics. Any opinions expressed by panelists are their own and do not represent the beliefs of the conference, 42 Analytics, or the MIT Sloan School of Management. 42 Analytics Educational, Inc. reserves all rights in the content.